My name's Michael Bridges, and you're listening to Searching for Shinies. Welcome to Searching for Shinies, the football sticker book podcast with me, Ketch, and him, Richie Wyatt. Richie, we're blooming well doing it. Season two <laughs> of Searching for Shinies is here. Talk to me. Who would have thought? Who would have thought we'd be allowed back on there? <laughs> but we're back. It's great to be back. Ketch, do you want to give people a quick reminder as to what it is that we're doing? Yes, of course. If you haven't listened to season one of Searching for Shinies, what the hell are you doing? Go back and listen. It's brilliant. But I will fill you in on what we're actually doing. We are literally just trying to find players who featured in the 1997 Merlin Premier League sticker book. So there are 16 players per club. Managers had stickers too. We'll happily speak to a manager. If you know anyone uh, or you're in contact with any player or manager who was in the 97 book, we want to speak to them. We've spoken to about a dozen so far. Um, We've got a few more interviews coming up for season two. So that's what we're trying to do. It's pretty simple. We're collecting players in real life like we used to collect stickers in the playground back in the 90s. Mm. And it's great fun. Let's add that. It is. It is. And we hope you enjoy what's about to come, listener. Richie, before we get into it, how was your break, mate? What have you been doing? Wow. Um, it was good, thank you. Obviously, it's been the summer. I enjoyed, especially enjoyed the Euros, although some of us weren't as lucky as others where we catch. Two tickets to one of the games. Still waiting on the invite, so... Uh, one ticket, so it would have been difficult for you to, to come with me, but uh, great experience. Uh, I was at the semi-final against Denmark, club level, if you're asking. Above Harry Kane as he as he scored his penalty. Um didn't get a ticket for the final, but maybe that wasn't a bad thing. But uh, yeah, it was it was special. Brought back a lot of Euro ninety six memories. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just it's good to be back into the domestic campaign now and finding stickers again, finding players for our yeah. little podcast. And the the break was slightly longer than anticipated, and that's largely due to how difficult it is to find Players. I mean, you, you know, we, we've really narrowed down. We're quite niche, this podcast, in terms of the amount of people that we're able to speak to, given that, you know, there's less than 300 people or so in the book in the book who are available. So we need players from the following clubs to ensure we have a, a each team represented. And that's Villa, Blackburn, Coventry, Everton, Liverpool and Man United. And we're always looking for players. So I've spent my summer grafting away whilst you were sipping on your, your champagne and eating your prawn sandwiches at Wembley. Uh-huh. Here are some of the players I've tried, but have not been so successful. Noel Whelan, Coventry. A former teammate of his said he'd come on, but we've had no response from three separate messages on Twitter. I think I might have to give up the ghost with, with Noel Whelan. So it's out, Noel. Yes. Mark Wright, Liverpool. Followed us on Twitter, then seemingly just gave up social media. No responses. Maybe that was his people Car- who followed us on Twitter, rather than Mark it could himself. be. Could be. Not happy about it, though. Carlton Palmer returns to the UK, having been away. Obviously, leads in the book. He follows us on Twitter, then seemingly makes a choice to ignore us, having literally just followed us. <sighs> Wounder. Tony Grant, Everton, ghosted us. Richard Shaw, Coventry, ghosted. Jason McAteer follows us, then disappears. Liam Daish, he's interacted with me, but when I invite him, ghosts us. Daishy, Lars Bah. job. I know. Lars Bohinen, fairly sure he's fictional. Steve Howie turns us down, made all the more painful by the fact that Ketch's albino pet hedgehog is named after him. Yeah, Howie the Hedgehog, not happy with you, Steve. No, David May. Oh, don't. Connection says he'd be bang up for it. He turns us down the moment the text messages hit his phone. Just a quick one on May. He was my banker. David May isn't in the sticker book, but we're so struggling for a Man United player. I was like, if we have to use David May as an emergency, we will, because I had a, a friend of mine, personal contact, 
we 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 pulled out a parachute on David May, and he mm. flat out rejected us. Don't, didn't fancy it. So you were like you were like throughout. No, we'll, we won't use David May. We've got him in the back pocket if we <laughs> it's need like, him. Like break glass in case of emergency. <laughs> and yeah. I smashed the glass, and he wasn't there. To to clarify, he's not. He is in the book. He didn't have a sticker. So there's four players per team that don't have a sticker, and he's one of them. And he's turned us down. But the biggie, Andy Townsend. You've exchanged messages with him. The dream guest. He's got Villa stories. He's got Borough stories. He's got endless Gaza he stories. With Gaza. He, he agrees to come on after the summer. It just seems that his summer is eternal because he's not. <laughs> we got an email saying, I'll, I'll, I'll come on in the new season, mate. So is that is that contractually binding? Maybe we could. The get new the season of involved. what? What, the new season the new, of Only Fools and Horses? The new season, like, of, the new season of football, <laughs> freak. <laughs> Where is he? Where, where is he? I know. He's got an AWOL. Um, well, anyway, I mean, this part is the, supposedly the fun part, the searching for players. And, and thankfully, listeners, we have a few lined up, mm. but we need your help. Can you put us in touch with anyone in the game? Mm. I mean, the, the players often say, yeah, I'll, I'll have a word with so-and-so. He'd come on. And a prime example would be we interviewed Craig Hignett in season one. He told us that... He'd text Keith Gillespie to ask him. They were teammates at Blackburn. We eventually get Gillespie via a different mm. route. Has he heard from Higgy? Definitely not. Mm. Definitely no, had no text message from Craig Hignett. So, you know, not digging out Higgy. He's a legend, but come on. Help yeah. us out. Yeah. Listeners, help us out. We need a few final stickers to cover every club in the book. We are nearly there, Matthew. Yeah. And just to say in Bridgie's defence, we we asked, we sent him over 50 names after the interview and said, Do you, can you put us in touch with any of these? And he replied on WhatsApp within eight minutes. He gave us Robbie Fowler's email, a number for Ronnie Johnson, an email for Andy Cole, and an email for David May, who'd already snubbed us. All of those proved fruitless. No reply from, from uh, Robbie Fowler. Ronnie Johnson replied saying, this is not Ronnie's number anymore. <laughs> so God knows what number he gave us. Nothing from Andy Cole and obviously May is keen not to be associated with us. So it's like that. It's like that. You know, I remember doing the sticker books back in the 90s. You need that last Sasa Church sticker and no one's got it and you're battling for it. This is the stick. This, you know, this is the hard yards. We're, we're, we're in it now. So we've just got to mm. knuckle down. And we have got some, some players for you. Bridgie is our first one. And I was especially buzzing to get him on the show because listeners of Searching for Shiny season one will remember me discussing often at length my favourite piece of 90s football memorabilia, a pen Michael used to sign autographs with at a football presentation night I attended at Willington High School in Howden that smelled of his aftershave decades after he used it. Such was the ferocity of the scent that night. <laughs> and as soon as we booked Bridgie, I was straight in the attic. I-, I spent a few hours looking for the pen. I'm devastated to report I can't find it. I've not given up hope that it's not in there. I can't find it. I can't smell it. So it's not looking good. It's not looking good. Maybe it's maybe it's being chucked out. I don't know Just why. Just what you need. Get Howie the Hedgehog up there. He'll have a sniff around. That's a good show. That's a good show. But I mean, why I would why would I throw the pen out? It's such a prized piece of memorabilia. Um, mm. It has to be up there. But we did find Michael Bridges the human, um, and I got the chance to ask him about that famous presentation night in Howden mm. in nineteen ninety six, which he remembered. Mm. Uh, we quizzed him about the aftershave, and he responded, and I just loved his answer. And I hope you do mm-hmm. too, listener. So, come on, <laughs> let's kick off season two of Searching for Shinies. I'm going to press play on our first episode with Sunderland and Whitley Bay legend Michael Bridges. Joining us today is a player who existed as a rose among thorns in one of the toughest dressing rooms in the Premier League during the 96 97 season. Finding the player 
who occupies sticker number 454, was like trying to pin down an AWOL Paolo Di Canio or Pierre Van Hoydonk. From Whitleybait, Australia, via Wearside, Leeds, Bristol, Hull, we're delighted to extend a big shiny welcome to Sunderland's Michael Bridges. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on, lads. Looking forward to it. Great, yeah. It's fantastic <laughs> to finally be connected with you. Uh, what we like to do with the guests, first of all, is we're wondering, there's 16 stickers on the Sunderland page from the 96-97 book. We're wondering, obviously you are one, can you name, or how many can you name, of the other 15? Oh, easy. Um, Tony Corton must be on there. Yes. We will go with Martin Scott, big nose. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've, let's go into the let's do the back the back line. Um, oh, fans' favorite Darius Kibitsky's got to be there. Great one. Uh, mid f- two centre halves that would be Andy Melville and Richard Ord. Yeah, yeah. Uh, midfield right side. No, Kevin Ball is definitely in there, and yeah. Paul Bracewell must be in there. This is great start mm-hmm. seven. Um, left left side. Oh, be the bloody blonde bombshell, the bloody Barbie doll, Mickey Gray. Got to <laughs> yeah. be. Yeah. Um, on the right, who we got? Oh, he looks. Yeah, he wears a swimming cap. Um, I knew. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be Agas. <laughs> He's in. Yeah, that's nine. Who else had a crack in here? Alex Ray. Yes. Yep. That's ten. Um, Quinny's got to be in there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Myself. Yeah. Um, oh no, now I'm struggling. Um, Magic, Magic Johnson, sticky. Dude, Alan Johnson? No, he didn't make it. Didn't have a sticker. No. Didn't have a sticker. You're kidding. He was one of the highlights. Well, if he didn't have one, Chrissy Waddle must have. Oh no, he came late. He wouldn't be in there. That's right. Um. Oh, struggle. Sammy Aston. No. 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 You've raced to twelve, but the last four. Do you want oh, to help him out? Man. Craig Russell. Yes. Can I just say on Craig Russell? He looks exactly like I'd have expected you to look like in 2026. Did he ever get mistaken for your father? <laughs> well, he did when I was a, just the height difference. <laughs> okay. I got about two foot on, um, on small Craig. Um, Martin, let's have a think. Martin, my room, he's got to be Martin Smith. No, he's not in. Well, there you go. I'm, I'm stuck now then. I'm absolutely d- done. You've got a forward that did once play for Newcastle. From Birmingham. Oh, Ned Kelly. Yeah. Yeah, David Kelly. How could I forget him? I used to drive his Porsche when he pays. That was lush. <laughs> Amazing. You've got a midfielder who's registered about 500 games before joining Sunderland, including Liverpool, Man City, Spurs. Liverpool, it's Man a tough one. City. Liverpool, Man City and Spurs. Blackpool yeah. as well, notably. <laughs> From Manchester... I have got no idea and I'm going to be suitably embarrassed here. I'll give you a clue, actually. We spoke to Martin Scott and he said that this player used to shout, aye, aye, captain, in the dressing room whenever Kevin Balls spoke. Oh, Paul Stewart was yeah. there, but he came That's late. it, Paul Stewart. It's Tim. Paul Stewart, yeah. is it? Yeah. There you go, Stewie. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got one left and it's a lad from Croydon, a defender who came from Chelsea. Oh, Gareth Hall. Well done. So there you go. There you go. The full you got there. Yeah, there you go. It's a good effort. I was thinking that because Chrissy Waddle came late, Sam Mason was there, Darren Holloway was there, my time as well. So, no, not, not a bad effort. Happy with that. When we flick through the book, um, obviously it reeks of the 1990s. 
um, up until Sunderland, where it almost certainly feels like it's about 1983. <laughs> the, the, the kit, the image of a roofless Roker Park, I know you can't see the book where you are. Um, Paul Stewart is the big feature in plain black boots. Steve Agnew obviously looks like he scored in the 66 World Cup final. The keeper kits are absolutely huge, big baggy green, baggy green parachutes. There's not a shred of hair gel in sight. Did it feel like you were in the 80s? I mean, it just, it just, it's strange. It looks like you were a set of extras from Billy Elliot. Well, do you know what it was? That when, when I look, I was coming through, and obviously I was the stick man, and them jerseys on me looked even bigger. I think I would have been even quicker had I had a streamlined jersey because it was like a bloody parachute. And when I, when I look back at the lads that were there, when you talk about Paul Stewart, um, Paul Bracewell, Chrissy Waddle was there at the time, Dickie Ord, Annie Melville, uh, Tony Corton, Niall Quinn, they were all old, old men. And, like, you know, I'm just a young teenager coming through. And um, the, the dress sense, I've got to say, did look like it was a bit prehistoric from the lads. So um, I'm not sure about the kit and the jerseys and the sticker album, but the, the dressing room wasn't a very... Let's put it this way, it didn't stand me in... When you look to be mentored and you want to be remembered, like all the lads do with all their trendy gear, every football club I've been to in the centre of the programme, I've been known as the worst dressed footballer, and I blame I blame them <laughs> bastards back then because they give me they give me they give me nothing because they were all dressed from the eighties. Uh, brilliant. Yeah. There's um there's a little thing here. It's a, ma- a picture of the Sunderland Monthly Mag, yeah. and on the front of it, it's got. Who needs Janino when we've got Quininio? <laughs> now, first, uh, if I was a Sunderland fan, I'd be fuming that Borough have got a mention on our team page. But Quininio is that a nickname that stuck? Um, not really, because we used to call, we used to love his disco pants. <laughs> we used to love that chant. <laughs> Nile Quinn's disco pants are the best. They go up from his ass to his chest. <laughs> Nile Quinn's disco pants. We used to love that one. Quinny was a legend, just an unbelievable guy. If there was. Anybody, the two main men that I got mentored off at that club, Niall Quinn was one of them, and the other guy um, was David Kelly, like I say. It was just incredible, the upbringing that I had under the wing of these guys, and we were in the same position. They didn't see me as a threat, they just nurtured me, and Quinny, I've got to say, just took us under his wing, on the field and off the field. Um, When you consider I was on £40 a week as a YTS, and room with Niall Quinney would give us £200 to be his roommate for the weekend. I would hide that money under my pillow. I wouldn't leave it. And when I got in the car after the game with my dad, I was like, Dad, look at this, five weeks' wages off Quinney. And that was just for looking after the bedroom for Quinney. He's just a legend. Amazing, amazing. Uh, Michael, it's so great to have you on the podcast. We have actually met before. Um, in the mid-90s, you presented me and my school team, Star of the Sea, with our successfully defended primary school league title. Presentation was at Wilmington Key High School in Howden. What are your memories of that fantastic evening? I remember it very, very well um, because Rob Kitchen would have been up there as well, was one of my old school teachers, <laughs> was um, part of North Tyneside School Teachers and Northumberland, and I think he was up at, um, at Wellington School as well. So, um, yeah, I remember that evening very, very well. Um, there was kids everywhere. Yeah, well, I was one of them. I was one of them. And, and, and listeners to Searching for Shiny Season 1, they'll remember... We asked listeners to send in and, or, or email us with their favourite random pieces of 90s football memorabilia. Mine was the pen that you used to sign with autographs that night because it still smelt of your aftershave decades <laughs> later. I'm not even joking. This week, I went into my dad's loft to try and find it. I was convinced I still had it. I found the autograph, but the pen is gone. And, and frankly, I'm devastated and wondering what brand of aftershave you were into back then because I vividly remember the, the, the woody, musky smell of it. 
Well, that must have been back then. Like I say, it was on £40 a week. It's got to have been a dupe or some cheap brand like that because when I got a Leeds United, I went on to the Mount, uh, Silver Mountain, the Creed. Oh, so nice. you uh, could tell the wages went yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> so that would have definitely been a dupe. <laughs> Again, we mentioned already spoke to Martin Scott a little while ago and um, he recalls that you were like Willow of the Wisp, which we had to Google. It turns out it's an 80s cartoon series narrated by Kenneth Williams, who Willow is described as a sprite formed from gas who narrates each story. The picture of him is ridiculous. Do you recall being referred to as Willow of the Wisp, or did you have other nicknames? I got many of other nicknames. Um, some of them can't be repeated. Um, the Germ, the Bug, Stickman, um, Twig. So and the other the other one was absolutely brilliant that um it was Golden Balls and that was even before the Beckham the Beckham um, got crowned with it. And it was off Steve Agnew and Martin Scott, funnily enough, because um, what had happened, everything I seemed to touch turned to gold, whether it was with the, the youth team coming into the reserves. Um, like you say, just I used to find things and um, it, it was just ridiculous. And the funniest day was when Steve Agnew lost his teeth on the training ground. <laughs> his, um, his fake <laughs> teeth fell out, his palate. And I'll never forget, he lined the YTSs up and he said, we're going to have to march and walk across the field together in a line and you're going to look at the floor, and the f- whoever finds my teeth gets a hundred pound. And I kid you not, who found it? Me, Golden Bollocks. So it was. Um, I found Steve Agnew's teeth. There you go. I mean, you just you just wouldn't get that in modern football, would you? Uh, wouldn't get it. We I'll never forget. We all he came and he got. We all doing our jobs up at the training ground. He came and got us all. He said, "Right, line up, lads. I've lost my teeth." And Agnes has got this like the, the two front teeth with a palette. We were pissing myself. It was brilliant. So you're in the first team, age seventeen. What is that like? Because we hear about players joining in training, carrying out apprentice-style tasks like cleaning boots, etc. But you're in the team. That must have been a weird period. It, it was very, very scary. Um, and I've got to, when I look back, I've got to give credit to Peter Reid and Bobby Sachs and the way they handled uh, me at a young age. They didn't let us do interviews with the media until I had some media training. They really protected me from that side of it, so I didn't um, get carried away. And they would always take me on away trips for the with the squad to do the jobs to get us used to the atmosphere in and around the boys on the bus then they'd give us a little sample of the bench for about four or five matches and it was just breaking down all the barriers of the nerves it wasn't just like right get out there and you're straight in the in the limelight and it was a nice gradual progression um but I'll never forget that debut when it finally came was at Roker Park it was against Port Vale and it was nil nil and I'll never forget, it was finally... I'd, I'd been in the, the bench about four or five times and really said, this is it, you're getting yourself warmed up, you're going on, young man. And there was 20 minutes to go. And I remember looking at um, Steve Smeltz, the physio, and I was like, where the hell's the bucket? I think I'm going to be sick, man. And it, it was the, the nerves were kicking in. But as soon as I went over that white line and I heard the roar of the crowd, I, I, be, I switched off. It affects a lot of players. It didn't affect me. I became an entertainer and I absolutely loved it. And um, the more I wanted the ball, the more the, I heard the crowd getting getting behind us, and I lo- I just absolutely loved it, lads. And I think um, I didn't I didn't score that game, but I shaved the crossbar. And the funniest part about it was going after the game to find out you've played twenty five minutes, you've got man of the match. And um, I went upstairs and I collected a bottle of champagne, a bottle of vodka, and a bottle of whiskey. And I was only seventeen, and my dad <laughs> confiscated them straight off us. But I thought, like, well, how can you give a seventy year old kid all this this alcohol? Mm. You know. Um, and yeah, it was just an unbelievable moment. But like I say, it was it was the 
the way that they handled my situation, I thought when I look back now and I'm coaching, it was just absolutely tremendous. Mm. Were you allowed a beer on the bus on the way back from away games or did the did the lads mm. look after you in that sense? No, nah, do you know what it was? They looked after us till I was 18. Me and um, we used to go, really loved a trip to Mottram Hall in Manchester when we had two away games. We'd stop there for a week so the lads could play golf. Um, have a night out, have a bonding, and he always made me and Darren Holloway stay back. We weren't allowed to go out with the with the boys into Manchester for the night out or into the old Woodley as it was. So um, yeah, it was it was all done professional. But as soon as I turned eighteen, really was all about getting getting hammered and getting in with the boys. So um, I was I had, I had my initiation early. But I'm from Whitley Bay, so it's not like I hadn't had a drink before. <laughs> yes, bank holiday <laughs> special. You were used to. It. I got bank holiday Mondays, mate. That's many. That's, that's killed off many a man. <laughs> but I mean, talking about being an entertainer in, in your second season involved with the first team, a camera crew turns up. Ninety six, ninety seven. Premier Passions was filmed. Uh, we've got a few observations from from watching it back on YouTube recently ahead of this interview. It must have been weird. Or, or difficult having a camera crew everywhere while you know while you're trying to s- survive relegation. There's the weird religious music that they played on the edit. The interviews with supporters, all that mad stuff. The dressing rooms, it was kind of like Sunday league, and there was mad stuff we we forgot about. Like John Dal Thomason turned up with a view to look to sign in a deal, and it broke down. Mo- loads of mad stuff. Lo- very candid information, like Gaza being offered twenty eight grand a week. How did you find that, and did you enjoy watching it back when it eventually came out? Do you know what it is? I, I didn't really. Um, the the camera crew that was there, obviously, it was it was a bit nerve wracking knowing that they were following you everywhere, um, and it wasn't going to come out till the end of the season because obviously the editorial light we can do nowadays, you can get them out on a week to week or month to month basis. We obviously they documented everything, and I think it got vetted at the end of the season, or it should have got vetted. Um, but it was it was open slat, and I think we kind of relaxed when we saw the way Reedy was. It wasn't him acting or putting on a, a persona of him being, you know, wanting to showcase himself as a swear and a baller and being the, the big man. That was actually him. That's how he coached, and you got the nice side of him, and you got the horrible side of him. And I think once we realised that he wasn't showboating to the cameras, um, it. They weren't really that much in our face. It just became second nature. I think the first couple of months, I would say, yes, it, it might have had an effect. Um, but we started the season uh, pretty well, do you know what I mean? It wasn't it wasn't a, a bad start to a season with, a, a I think we had a draw, a win and a draw, if I'm correct. Um, but it was the back end of the season that really, really affected us. And I think that's when you've got a camera crew in your face and things like that and the results aren't going your way. Um, in the I think it was the 90, 96, 97 season, I think we might have lost four, four or five in a row, um, which was not good when you were needing results. And the, how the camera crew actually managed to stay with us is, is beyond me because there was bottles getting thrown, there was teacups getting thrown, there was kettles getting hoid. Um, and it wasn't a pretty, that was not a nice environment towards the end, um, especially the last game of the season because we found out Coventry had delayed their kickoff by 15 minutes. Um, and they said it was crowd trouble or something, and we were playing Wimbledon on the last game of the season. And unfortunately, if I'm correct, I'm thinking, unfortunately, we we knew that we had got beat off Wimbledon 1-0, and we were, I think that last bit of the footage is just, you know, it, it's terrible even to watch to this day, um, to see how we were just waiting 15 minutes to see what that result was going to be. Um, very, very good tactics by Coventry, I do believe, um, back when I look back at it. Um, and the only thing to come from that documentary and the hardest part for me was being at the age of 17, waiting till the end of the season, we'd got relegated and Premier Passion comes out on television. 
So I remember sitting down with my mum and dad thinking, right, how are these episodes going to go? Well, the bit where Peter Reid tells me how shit I am against Arsenal, how I can't hold anything up. <laughs> me and Craig Russell are looking down at the floor and he's going, don't look at me as if I'm a fucking stupid young man. And, you know, I'm 17 years of age and I am getting absolutely pelted. There's one thing, if anybody listens back to that, I was absolutely crapping myself. There's one thing I use as a motivational speaking over here as well. There's something that Peter Reid says in that. He talks about the international footballers that are out there on the field. He says, young man, there's international footballers out there. Bergkamp, Merson, there's internationals. You are as good as them. And he got me attention straight back and he made me feel a million dollars after he said that, even after he annihilated. But everybody remembers that horrible the horrible words that he was shouting at us and telling us how crap I was and all the rest of it. But he was just trying to get, get us up and motivated. But when he actually said them words, and we got that result 1-0 in the end of the day, we beat Arsenal at home. Uh, and that was huge for me. But my mother didn't see it that way when we were watching it. She she actually said to us she was going to ring Peter Reid up and make a complaint <laughs> to the football club after she watched it. And I was like, you don't understand, mother. You can't do it. This is a professional football club. This shit goes on. <laughs> Amazing. So, um, yeah, but yeah, unbelievable. When you when you look back, they, them words were vital, what he said before I went out. Otherwise, I would have gone out and been a broken, broken man. In that Wimbledon game, there's a scene where the players are in a little room off the tunnel at Selhurst Park watching teletext to update yes, to see if you I mean we didn't you, have any footage were you there in that room watching a blank yeah, teletext yeah. yeah I was on those being on the bench that game and um, coming in and just I couldn't get in because obviously all the lads were in there I remember Dickie he'd already opened the can of beer um, win, win draw lose on the booze was his motto so we were <laughs> We were kind of like waiting um, and there were, I managed to find somebody in the corridor that had a radio. So there was a radio somebody was listening to um, and we were gathered around that as well. But the lads were watching Teletext or CFAX, whatever it was. Yeah, really, really. It's incredible how times have, have changed. Um, but yeah, that was just not a, not a nice situation to be in. You've already mentioned him quite a few times, but we've got to ask you about Peter Reid, about what he's like as a character and as, as a manager. What can you tell us about Peter? Peter is what you get, plain and simple. And what, what, what I think, it was a brilliant combination, the duo of Peter Reid. What he, what he didn't have tactically, Bobby Saxon had an abundance. Bobby Saxton, when I look back, was just a... He was a guy that was always trying to use a tactic board while really was blasting all the players. Sacco was always in the background trying to move the magnets around. And um, every Friday, it was Bobby Saxton that would take the session. Peter Reid would join in. Sacco would do the the shape, the tactical stuff. And I look back and, you know, he, it was incredible the amount of work and effort that we put in on a Friday of game shape of how we wanted to play. We had two players in every position um, that could cover each other up. As well, in obviously in my time that I was there, I think the best one was when it was Quinny and Quinny Kev, and then me and Danny Diccio um, at a later date. There was just two players for every position. But Sacco did the dynamics. Bobby did the tactics. Peter Reid did the motivational side of it. Now, if you got on Reedy's bad side, um, I don't think he would have give you two strikes. I think one strike and you're out. That's probably one thing when he looks back that he could have been better person and better manager for not let let the dust settle and then discuss things and and don't burn all your bridges no pun intended but as a as a man motivator um he got the best out of players that were coming through like myself players that were coming up divisions um to do better and you know when he when he built relationships with the likes of Niall Quinn who was a senior pro uh, and Martin Scott and Kevin Ball he he admired a bit of Everything he didn't just look like Bowley was not a great footballer, 
Spalding was an unbelievable captain, a leader, and every team needs one of them players that does that and gives it the other players that can do the the skills and the tricks and the flicks and get the goals. And we, he just he just had an eye for the balance of the team. Um, but like I say, motivational wise and everything, absolutely incredible. Um, and and him and Sacco, I just thought the dynamics. I think if they had been with separate and hadn't been together, I don't think the chemistry would have been as good because the two of them were just it was yin and yang. It was amazing. Mm. I think from the outside looking in, he seems like quite a lovable character. Can you remember any particularly funny Reedy moments? Oh, great. Absolutely loads. I mean, the, the funniest one for me, it was my first actual... I was still playing with the youth team with a guy called Rick Sprazier, who was my, my youth team coach. Now, Rick was a, a true Scotsman. You know, he, he he would make us do the jobs until five o'clock at the ground. Um, every I had the dressing room, the away dressing room and the physio department. And I had to clean um, Gordon Armstrong's and Alec Chamberlain's football boots. And if if there was a bit of dust in the corridor, now bearing in mind Roper Park was falling apart, so if a pigeon flew, then dust came through into the corridor. <laughs> so you just hoped that the pigeons didn't flap before five o'clock, otherwise you'd be there till midnight. So you you know it was the the jobs were there. Darren Holloway was the the leader. And they had the office right down the bottom end of the corridor where all the staff got together, dark and dingy room. And I'll never forget, um, I'd never seen, really spoke to Peter Reid um, at this point. But I got called down to the office and my background is obviously English. Um, I didn't realise I had any Scottish heritage in the family. So when I went down to the office, I've I've got summoned in. I've, I've basically just opened the door and person said, yep. Yeah. And so Peter Reid went, yep. Are you kidding Get back out the fucking room and do what's right and knock on the door, eh? So I've gone back outside and thinking, oh my God, I've just messed up. There's the gaffer. So anyway, I've knocked on the door and they've made us wait for about 30 seconds before they've gone, come in. <laughs> so they've said, they've said, come in. I've opened the door and I've said, um, Peter, I heard you wanted to speak to us. He went, fucking Peter, get back out the fucking door. So I've gone, oh God, what have I got to do? So anyway, third time lucky. I've opened the door, I've said, Mr. Reed, he's gone, yo, get out, it's gaffer or boss when you come in this fucking room. <laughs> so, bearing in mind, I haven't started off on the brightest of things. So as I got in the fourth time, I've, I'm shaking, and I'm thinking, what have I done wrong, like, apart, apart from not calling, like, the proper name. He said, I've got a bit of paper here, uh, Michael, he said, um, you've got an England call-up for the under-18s for England, they're playing Scotland. Um, on Wednesday night, and this was on this was the Friday, so we had to get the weekend out of the way. Uh, next Wednesday, and they're playing Scotland up at St Mirren. Eh, no, sorry, Motherwell's ground. And um, he said, "You've you've been called up," and I was like, "Brilliant." He said, "But Rick Sprazier there, he's got one from Scotland, and they want you to play for <laughs> Scotland on Wednesday night <laughs> against England." He said, "So who would who do you want to pick?" And I was like, "I didn't even know I had Scottish relatives. How they done this? Like anyway." <laughs> So Reedy's chat to me was, listen, I'm the gaffer of this football club. I'm English. I played for England. If you don't pick England, you'll never play for this club ever again. And then Rick Sprazier said to us, if you don't pick Scotland, you'll never play for the youth youth team ever again. I said, well, that'll do me because I'm going to play with Reedy for the first team. So I said, I'm going to be English. So Reedy was like, that'll fucking do me, lad. That'll do me. You get yourself out. So I totally made up to to him. He was just a, a good, good character, you know. Should have said cheers, Peter, and walked yeah. out. And then TV well, do you, want to, do you want to know even funnier story? <laughs> yes. Uh, years later, I went. To, years later, me and Darren Holloway went down to Tall Trees in in Middlesbrough to went and had a big rave up and a, and a big party. And we left. We left very late. We tried to get accommodation, 
and it was fully booked up. We couldn't get in at like five, four in the morning, whatever. They were fully booked. So we tried to get um, a couple of cabs out of there and the place was absolutely deserted by this point. And we thought, we're going to have to hitchhike back on the A19 here. We're struggling. And Daz Holloway had a brain with He said, listen, the gaffer just lives over there, over that wall. Like he's literally a hundred meters near tall trees over the wall. I said, yeah, fucking no chance. <laughs> no chance. He said, well, you're on your own. So Daz ran and leapt over this wall. And I've, I've ended up following him thinking, oh, God. So anyway, we stood at the front door together. And um, as Daz has knocked on the door at 4 a.m. in the morning, bearing in mind we've got training the next day, you know. <laughs> Daz has knocked on the door. And I've dived in the gaffer's bush outside his house. <laughs> so um, gaffer's gone, what the hell are you doing here, Daz? What, what, the, what fucking time is this, man? He said, oh, gaffer. He said, um, we've, we've had a nightmare, mate. He said, I'm really, really sorry. This is the last case scenario. He said, damn right it is. He said, "Can we can I stay, can we stay here the night?" And he said, "Who?" He said, "Bridgie's in the bush down there." <laughs> <laughs> so the gaffer gaffer grabbed me round the scruff of the neck. Dad's got a bed upstairs in the gaffer's <laughs> spare bedroom, and he gaffer put me on the floor downstairs in his lounge. Right. <laughs> so the following day, the car journey up to the training ground, mate, nothing, nothing was said. There was not a word spoken. I sat in the back with Dad's, and I kept looking at him, going, "We are we're finished. We're getting sacked here." So I got a text message on my phone off um, off one of the lads. I think it was Martin Smith. What have you two done? <laughs> so obviously it got back to the training ground. So we're travelling in anyway. Obviously it had already been pre-planned, but we didn't know this. So he got us in the middle of the dressing room and asked all the lads what, what the punishment should be and the fine. And he explained the situation. You could just see the senior pros going, these two are kidding themselves, aren't they? Teenagers <laughs> going and knocking the gaffer up like they're fucking mad. <laughs> So they all decide that they find us um, a month's wages and they should we should be sacked at the end of the season. So me and Dad's like, this what? This is, and he was like, yeah. <laughs> and Peter Reed, to be fair to me, he's absolutely amazing. He says, nah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them two a new two year contract because they've got balls of steel doing this. Yeah. They're the type of players out. They're the type of players I want at this football club. So you know. Wow. He, he wound us up and we did get fined, obviously, but um, it, it was just the way that he had us panicking and then the way he managed to just flip it around to make us feel at ease. It was um, unbelievable. And I still can't believe to this day that me and Daz did that. Steve Agnew lives just just up the road from there. That's my hometown. You should have gone and knocked well, on his door and saved yourself. I would have rather, rather knocked on, I guess, believe you me. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing work environment. <laughs> incredible. I just wanted to ask you about the... Moving it on to the 97, 98 season when you moved from um, Roger Park to the stadium, I like, you know, chalk and cheese facilities wise, you must have been thinking, wow, this is amazing. We The Ajax game that opened the stadium, we heard that there was a leak in the dressing room and beer was coming through the ceiling. Do you remember that? I can't remember the leak. Do you know what I do remember though? Um, I was, it, it was um, the flies. There was just flies everywhere in the stadium. <laughs> Um, like dressing rooms there, everywhere you went there was flies and what what we found out that a Newcastle fan had been working on the stadium he'd put boxes of maggots oh all over God. the air conditioning he'd put boxes of maggots in the air conditioning units and obviously <laughs> give them enough hibernation time and I kid you not man it was like Lord of the Flies it was horrendous <laughs> That's amazing. so it was a number unbelievable prank when I look back and you think about it but it was yeah I, the first I don't know why I wasn't involved in the Ajax game. I, I don't know whether I'd been away with a, an England summer tournament or something because I kind of missed that. But I think the first game at home was um, it was an unbelievable atmosphere because it was a full house and it was Man City we got the win. I think it was Man City. I've got to, you'll have to double check that. 
Um, and it was just just incredible because, um, you know, Clarky was there with the fans. He had to win them over. Uh, Kev Phillips and Quinny, if that's, is that the right season I'm on about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was. I think they all they all got us off to a, a great start. So, yeah, fun, fun memories. And just to think that what dressing room and facilities we've had at Roker Park to walk out. Um, I mean, I'm still I'm getting goosebumps now talk, thinking about it because the the documentary. Um, I've been away a long, long time, and the documentary. Um, you know, some until I die, to hear that it was the music that I used to come out to when we all used to love when I was watching that documentary, give me, give me goosebumps. You know, my mother was um, over here at the time. She, she shed a tear and to see the documentary when they were changing the music oh, to get rid of, oh, to get rid of the, um, to, to bring in this techno music. Oh. And I was thinking, Christ, is I going back to tall trees? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Flashbacks to readies. Uh, <laughs> but it was, um, it was, yeah, I mean, just, just an incredible, uh, stadium. Yeah. It was in a, in, to think that you know Charlie Hurley, they'd asked Charlie Hurley myself to take the centre circle from Roker Park to the new to the new ground, and sadly that's why I think I must have been away um, somewhere because that would have been an unbelievable um, thing to be to be known for as well. That season you missed out on automatic promotion by one point, and that's the season where you had the four four game with Charlton in the playoff final. Um, yeah, that was I think uh, Middlesbrough beat us by one point. Yeah, I didn't want to say anything, um, but they did. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I saw that they, they got one over on us, didn't they? So it was. Um, because I'm trying to think, the the we because we were gutted because I'm sure we had the same. There was talk about the goal difference and it was a point that killed us. We didn't have the results yeah. or something like that. That's right, right. Yeah, yeah, you didn't win in the last three or something. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was close and you've just missed out. But that was the season where Phillips and Quinn sort of really became that famed partnership. Yeah. So we were wondering. Well, it, was, it was incredible. You, we were on the the. I'll never forget the run that we went on at the end of that season. I think it was about ten games ago. We were unbeatable. Uh, we win draws. There was one game that killed us, and it was um, it was Ipswich um, away. We 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 went down there. I'll still never forget. It, it was just everything went against us, and we got beaten. That cost that cost us. Um, that a draw I think would have been good enough, but we no, I think it was two or three nil. We got beat. I was yeah, not not good memories. That was the only. If you have a look at that season, I'm sure that's the only blip on our radar for the last half of the season. Mm-hmm. So with obviously. Quinn and Phillips playing so much. We wondered where did you fit in? Like, did you like to be up against the perspex, or were you more comfortable sitting right behind the gaffer? Where, where did you fit in? No, I didn't want to sit next to the gaffer because you never got to see anything. Um, couldn't see past his ears. He was. Um, it was. Um, I can only say that because he's not here and I'm halfway around the world. Yeah, I used to love sitting. You know what it is? I used to love sitting right on the left hand side, right next to the perspex, next to the fans. Um, and that because you got a good little view because if if you were anywhere near Sacco or Peter Sacco would just run out they dug out and he'd try and kick every ball and head every ball and you, you never got to see anything so sitting on the edge was nice and you could always um, get your little exit if the gaffer was swearing his head off you just you make an easy exit and go and have a little warm up with the fans yeah. so <laughs> yeah that was a, definitely a perspex and you know what it was it was nice to um, have some proper seats because I used to, <laughs> yeah. the, the wooden spelts in your arse from Roker Park weren't nice <laughs> yeah must have been a dream, actually. Uh, on, on... Now I see the lads have all got heated seats oh. these days. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Nobody wants to go and warm up. Different world. <laughs> Different world. The, the, the following, obviously, the four-four game. Michael Gray missed the penalty. Sunderland didn't go up, but the following season they stormed the league. Lee Clark, key player, captain, but then obviously was photographed at the '99 FA Cup final wearing a t-shirt, derogatory uh, t-shirt about Sunderland. 
he'd been egged on, I think, by Newcastle fans to wear it. Obviously, you must remember that. Did did you ever speak to Clarkie about it and, and sympathise with him as a as a Geordie being egged on by Newcastle fans? Well, speaking of that season, um, what what it stemmed back to after the this is where you talk about Peter Reid's, uh, and it, it could give you a little bit of a, an insight into what he's like. The after that penalty miss, we had two two coaches down there um, at Wembley. Uh, one was with the family and family girlfriends, wives, families, and one was for the players to turn up um, to the ground. And then afterwards, everybody was going to get you know mix in and mingle, hoping that we got promoted and have a party on the way back. And obviously, after Mickey missed missed the penalty, uh, we got on the bus and you know it was very very quiet. And there was a couple of the uh, players' wives on. I can't remember who it was, but there was a few of them got on the the bus and they were you know sitting with their partners and trying to console them. And obviously, I was just getting on as a teenager, or getting ready to crack open a can of beer and drown me sorrows with the with the lads. And Peter Reid got on. He said, "Right." He said, "Used to." I can't remember two of the women. This it was mad. Used to off the bus. This is just for the lads. We're we're going to sort this out ourselves. So some of the I mean, the players aren't going to like argue with a gaffer. Do you know what I mean? Um, and what had happened? He made sure everybody was on the bus. And he said, "Listen, lads." He said, "This is going to be. There's a lot of clubs after summer use." I want you all to promise me that we will all stay together. If this group of players stays together and nobody pisses off, he says, we're going to win this league next season single-handedly and set a record if all he has promised that he's will stay together. And he said, and from here all the way home, we're going to do a pub crawl. And you can see that's going crazy. Oh. There's a lot of lot of pubs between here and Sunderland. Like, so, <laughs> um, it, and what, hey, we just got it all out of our system and we got, got there. And like I say, that, that following season, when I think about it, everybody had stuck together. I didn't mind playing second fiddle to Quinny and Kev because the two of them were absolutely unbelievable. And the partnership, like I say, I had nothing but praise for Quinny. And when I got my opportunity, I was able to get on. And like I say, the, the little and large combination, whenever Quinny was injured, Danny Diccio played. Whenever Kev was injured or suspended, I came on and got a chance. And we took our opportunities. But at the end of the day, when Quinny and Kev were together, there was nothing could stop them two. They were absolutely frightening. It was a match made in heaven. And I didn't mind because I was learning off them. And I was playing my part that season. And we only got beat three times in a season, by the way. 105 points that year. It was... It, when I think about... That every everywhere we stepped out away from home, we felt unbeatable, and every time we came at home, because there was there was only one game we lost that that season. Um, it was I can't think of it was, but it was only one game at home we lost. Um, two away, but you were unbeatable at the stadium, like because the people just got behind us. So the really sad thing at the end of that year was knowing that Lee Clark had won the Summon fans over. Because Clarkie came in, it's not often that you, you, he had to win them over, and he knew he had to. When his performances were unbelievable, the goals he was scoring, he he was wearing that shirt with pride because he's a true professional. And when I saw what had happened in the off season, I've got to say I, I was absolutely gutted because I, I knew he'd made a fundamental error, but I didn't realise how bad it was until the first day of pre-season. Now, you've got to remember, I was in the, amongst the boys, but I was one of the young lads, so I hung around with your Sam Asons, your Darren Holloways, your Paul Thurwells. I didn't mix with you. I went out with the lads, obviously, um, but I, I didn't socialise and think I was one of the senior pros. And so I never really got to speak to Clarkie. And I remember driving the training ground, and the first day of pre-season, I, all I saw was these Lee Clark like scarecrows hanging from the rafters with a noose around the neck and they were burning them oh, and I thought wow 
Yeah. I'll ne- we'll never see Clarkie ever again. That's when it. That's when it really hit home. So afterwards, speaking to Clarkie about it as the years go on, and um, you know, become become good mates and all that. He he does. He regrets it. He regrets it because he realised how many people he disrespected. But at the end of the day. He, he let his guard down, he got pissed, he was with his mates and he didn't realise that that picture, you know, if I'm with my schoolmates and we do things and we do stupid things, I know my close network of mates are good lads that look after me and have got my integrity and my best interests at heart. Clark, you must have had a couple of nuggets that wanted to, um, you know, he, Clark, he didn't do it to get a move. His mates did it to thinking it was funny and it backfired on their on their, on their their pal. And, you know, Lee, I mean, we... we we draped, we we draped a Newcastle shirt over Mickey Gray in Marbella when he fell asleep in a nightclub, and there was a Newcastle fan in there, and we managed to get a shirt on Mickey Gray and have a laugh in a nightclub <laughs> with the Sunderland fans. So you know that could have that could have gone horrendously wrong when you look back. You know when you make mistakes, it, it, a joke can be a joke, but then when it gets in the wrong context and the fans don't see the funny side, that could have quite easily backfired. And it was. We we'd done that before the Clarky incident had come out, and we were thinking, "Fuck, Mickey, Mickey Gray could have been in some serious trouble there if that had got out." Mm. Yeah. Especially if he messed his hair up as well. <laughs> oh, I don't, mate, you could do anything to Mickey Gray for two hours. Then he would wake up and he'd be like, "Right, where are we going next, lads?" And oh, Mickey, you've just missed two hours of the night, mate. We're going home. <laughs> he was he, he was embarrassing. Two two Budweisers, and he was anybody's. <laughs> so it's at the end of the nineties that you. Ended up moving to Leeds um, as a, a five million pound replacement for for Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. How did that come about? That came about. Um, I'd actually not wanted to sign a new contract with with Sunderland, um, and there was myself and um, Ada Alan Johnson were left. This is when I was saying we really didn't see the bigger bigger picture. He left us out of the pre season tour at Denmark when the lads went away because we wouldn't sign. So he left us back with the, the youth team to train. So he kind of isolated us out and, and kind of tried to force our hand to sign. It wasn't the way to handle it. Um, I'd heard that Tottenham Hotspur were interested. And because I was playing second fiddle to Niall Quinn and Kevin Phillips, I thought this is a great opportunity. It's the club I've supported. I played with Chris Waddle at Sunderland. Can you believe me? Hero. He walked in the dressing room. I got to play with, play with Chris Waddle uh, and Paul Stewart, obviously Spurs men. And I found out that there was interest there. So I thought, you know what it is? If I can see out the contract, it'll go to a tribunal at the end of the year um, or they'll have to sign us and Sunderland will, will sell us. I had an idea of what how it would go out or how it would work. But I thought I'd see out that season. And obviously it wasn't to be, um, which I was you know, disappointed at the way it had been handled. But in reality, Sunderland had to get some money if they knew I wasn't going to sign. Uh, me and Peter Reid had a bit of a fallout the season that year before in Marbella. Um so there was a bit of you know there was a bit of animosity there as well. So when Spurs finally Tottenham had agreed a fee with Sunderland, I got a phone call to say get yourself down to Spurs, and I was I was on my way. And, and what had happened? I look back, you know, Alan Lord Alan Sugar. Yeah. He he killed it. He absolutely killed us because George Graham was the manager at the time. David Pleat was the assistant and the chief scout there. And he'd been with us with the 21s at England. So, completely I knew George Graham was trying to tell me how, how good Tottenham Hotspur was. And I had to stop him. And I said, mate, you're Arsenal. I know you're Arsenal. You've been there all your <laughs> career. I'm a Tottenham fan. I know more about this club than you do. I said, you don't need to sell us anything. I'm here to sign. This is I can't believe I'm coming to Tottenham Hotspur. It's a childhood dream of mine. And then all of a sudden, this blue Rolls Royce pulled up outside. And he went, oh, here's Lord Sugar. He's come to say hi and welcome to the club. And I kid you not, I'll give you the 30 seconds that I got off Alan Sugar when I was sat there with my agent in London, scared stiff, by the way. 
he came and he said, um, young, young man, uh, nice to meet you. I've never heard of you before. I've heard you're a Sunderland Reserve player. I'm putting all my faith in these two lads here that have said they've got to pay this kind of money for you. I think it's ridiculous because you don't get much for your money because you look like you couldn't lift a paperweight. He said, I've got, <laughs> I've got better and bigger things to do with my life today. And he said, I'm going to go back to my Rolls Royce and I wish you all the best for the season. And by the way, you're not getting the money that your agent thinks he's getting. You've got to earn that. Take care. Good luck. Oh and I'm, I'm, wow. Wow. Imagine, imagine that. So George Graham, I heard George Graham go, oh, fuck. <laughs> um, and I, I looked at my agent and I went, right, and it was much to say, like, get me the hell out of here, that's it done. So as as, as Sugar left, George Graham apologised and said, listen, mate, he's, he's a dickhead, just ignore that. He said he does that, he's just trying to, that's his, that's his um, outer shell. I said, I don't care. I said, I'm gone. I said, I can't sign for a club that has that as an owner. And I said, and I know you, I don't know how long you're going to be here neither. I said, because you've got to win the fans over quickly when you're Mr. Arsenal. And it just didn't feel right. So I got in the car and I'm driving back up back to Sunland and <laughs> I remember ringing ringing Reedy or my agent did and he rang Peter Reed and he said um, Reedy listen the deal's fallen through and Peter Reed went you fucking what he said he, you, he said you better find him another club because I've already bought two players of his money and I can't afford not <laughs> for him not to be sold <laughs> so I, I'm on loudspeaker listening to this and Reedy's blowing a gasket like and then we heard it on the radio saying Bridges signed for Tottenham so my agent had to then get it out into the media that I hadn't signed. And as we were about an hour away from Leeds coming up, um, Peter Reid rang back and said, listen, stop off at Elland Road. Um, we've done a deal with Leeds United. They've matched the bit of Tottenham and see if you can get the deal done because I've got two players and I've already signed them and I need this to go through. Uh, and it was just a completely different. I was met at the gate by David O'Leary and Peter Ridsdale. I was shown around the stadium. I was shown around the training ground, another half an hour journey to the training ground. And a lot of the players were there introducing themselves as well. Um, it, it Something just felt right. And there were a lot of young lads that I'd played against for Sunderland youth team. And we couldn't beat them. Uh, Leeds United won the, I think it was the FA Youth Cup, but they always won our league. And it was your Kules, your Smith, yeah, your McPhail, your Robinsons, your Woody, um, Ian Hart. Just incredible. And I thought, to be part of this, I'd only watched them the season before, um, playing Manchester United. And I watched their young team. Um, on Super Sunday at my dad's house I was like what a team this is by the way dad and he, he went yeah and then to be part of that something just felt right so um, it's and it, it turned out that I'm a big believer in fate and that's how it worked out I, I turned down my me, me boyhood team because of um, Lord Sugar the Dream Killer and signed for a team that gave us, um, fulfilled all my dreams and played in Europe <laughs> Michael Bridges you're fired <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable what, tell us about David O'Leary because he's another one that seems like a bit of a character. Yeah, David, the only, the, he was absolutely brilliant. I mean, he, he, it's, it always helps when you get given money to spend. Um, and he got it at a young managerial opportunity, but he, he took his opportunity when he, when he could the year, a couple of years prior to that when he took over from George Graham. Um, he'd always been his right-hand man. He took over and stepped in and decided he was just going to buy the best young English talent around the country and that's what we did uh, and he wasn't scared to give his babes as he called us my babes mm. that's the only thing that annoyed us he was like my mm. babes you know my babes I look after them <laughs> yeah, that's a good impression uh, it, it used to really <laughs> piss us all off but he, he I can't say a bad word about him from the fact that he gave us opportunity put faith in us um, Eddie, Eddie Gray again I talk about the camaraderie him and Eddie Gray had an unbelievable camaraderie Eddie was the driver the motivator the the tactician 
And O'Leary was the, I saw, call him the jigsaw. He put the jigsaw, the pieces together. He saw what we needed. And he, he would he would look after us in the media. He did. He sheltered us a hell of a lot. And um, I've got to, you know, I, I, I thank him and credit him a lot for putting a faith when you lose Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank to put a 19-year-old lad in there that you've paid five million for. Um, and he must have seen something. And he, he said, listen, because yeah, I went there a little bit overweight. Um, can, you, can you believe the stick man had a little pot belly? Uh, and he said, you're going to have to get yourself fit. I said, I'll do whatever it takes. He said, because you're starting the season. It doesn't matter what you are starting the first game of the season. I'll give you a little, I'll give you a run because we've lost Jimmy. And I'll never forget that. You got off to a great start as well for Leeds, scored scored a hat-trick in your second game away to Southampton, but then you were dropped away at Man United by the looks of things and, and Leeds lost 2-0. We were wondering what happened there. Well, you know, my injury my injury um, passed. It was uh, it was kind of... The first game was terrible at Derby County at home. I could hear the fans. It was nil-nil. I could hear the fans going, five million, he's, he's absolutely shite. And you can you can walk off. It was a terrible performance by us. But then the second game away from home, the hat trick, I just felt like I'd, I'd I'd arrived. And it was David Batty came up to us and actually grabbed us after I got the hat trick. And he said, "Well done, son." He said, "You've you've arrived. You're welcome now. You're welcome. You're one of the boys." And it was nice to hear an England international say that. And you know, Bats was a bit like Kevin Baller, an absolute lunatic of a tackler, and but a man that you need in your team, the unsung heroes. And like you say, that they came to the Man United match and getting it was at Old Trafford, wasn't it? That one, yes, yeah. And I'd had a, I'd, I'd managed to have a little slip and a fall and um, put me back out before the, the the day before the game. So I was, um, I, was I was I on the bench? I can't remember whether I was. I definitely had some form of injury. I can't remember whether I was on the bench or whether I was left out. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely I'd done a, I'd done a bridge as they called it. I'd had a, a an injury crisis, but it was me own doing. Mm. So in November 98, you were scoring away to Crewe at Gresty Road for Sunderland. In November 99, you scored away at Lokomotiv Moscow in a 3-0 win for Leeds. What's it like playing Europe? Like It's such a, a, a stark difference in from one season to the next for you. Yeah, it was, in, it was incredible. Um, I think we were very naive the first year we travelled with Leeds United in the away trips because um, we didn't take a security team with us. And it was incredible. Whenever you went to Russia, the amount of fire alarms that went off and the amount of room service that you got delivered in the middle of the night to keep you awake, it was just frightening. Honestly, they did everything possible to keep you awake. And then the Galatasaray um, game that we played, and sadly we lost Chris and Kev to that horrendous stabbing. Um, the game should never have gone ahead. But prior to that, we were awake all night because they put us in a hotel right on the um, harbour. And I kid you not, there was about a thousand boats turned up from 9pm onwards and all they did all night, you could see all the lights on the boats and the guys would just put their feet up and get their beers on the back of their little um, tugboats and they'd just play cards on the back of the boat, they'd be smoking away, they'd be drinking and they would just honk the fucking horn mm. non-stop <laughs> and all you heard was ah, 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 all night long and we opened the blinds like what the hell's going on, we're having our team dinner that night at nine o'clock, that's how I remember when it started. And we opened the bat, the curtains on the balcony, and like you've got to be kidding. So the antics that went on were were unbelievable. And the only thing I really regret about the European football was not actually going out and about and seeing all these cities that we went to, like Rome, uh, like you say, spot Prague, a place like that. We didn't we didn't go out and about. We were young kids playing computer games, you know, <laughs> playing FIFA or Pro Evo in the hotel and then having your dinner. Um, but the the European nights isn't there's nothing better. I mean, I'm I'm a big shirt collector. I've got Aldeiers behind us, uh, Costa Curtis, 
uh, Frank De Boer. I just used to, you know, I'm playing against the teams that I admired as a kid and some of the players that I just had to pinch myself thinking, what am I doing playing against these these um, these types of teams and these players? So it's it's still, you know, great memories to have. And the European adventures, nothing comes close. The Premier League games are unbelievable, but European nights when you're playing Barcelona's and you're playing AC Milan's, man, it's it's just dream football. It's fantasy football. And uh, they're amazing memories and nights that I will have, but we learned a valuable lesson. The following year, we took a, in the Champions League, we took security with us and we had our own floor. Nobody could get up in the lifts. Um, it was it was it was run properly, and I think that's why Manchester United, with so many years of experience, um, I think it was Brian Kidd that actually gave us a lot of um, insight into the European adventures. What how how we need to change a lot when he came in. The, the Leeds squad, of, of course, was famously packed with talent in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. wondering if we could do a little quickfire bit on some of the big players in the squad. Um, we'll start yeah. with uh, Jonathan Woodgate. Should have and could have been one of the best defenders in the world. Um, he was the, I think there was only one player I saw destroy Woody. And that was Didier Drogba from RC when I was at Newcastle United with him. Um, we got the semi-finals and Drogba was just... A powerhouse, the spring, the leap. Woody had pace. Woody read a game. Um, he could leap and win a header. But he's the only man I've seen run Thierry Henry um, and follow his like keep up with his shadow. Um, he, I hated playing against Woody in training, but when I look back, playing against somebody like him on a on a day to day basis, there's no wonder my game went up to a whole new level when I was playing. Um, and I had to make the step up because he he could do anything, and he was a bit ahead of his time. He he, he was one of the first. Defenders that I actually saw, well, I actually had the luxury of playing with two of them, him and Rio Ferdinand at one point. They were actual ball players that could play out, and there was no wonder Real Madrid wanted him because he wasn't just your old English style defender. Let's head it, let's run, let's kick it. The kid could play. He had unbelievable feet, unbelievable touch, and um, I, I, it's just a shame he had injuries because um, could have been anything. Speaking of ball players, Mark Viduka now. We asked Ian Hart about the famous jeans story and he couldn't remember it. I think you were the one who who's told this story. Can you tell our listeners about the Dukes and the jeans? Well, is that when he came to, yeah. to warm up for a cool down? Yeah, yeah man. He, he, well, the Dukes, is, he, he could have been the, again, one of the best players in the world, um, but it became so natural to him. He, it, it, and he was horizontal. So Harry Q would be the first one into training and the last one to leave. Alan Shearer, when I was there with him, was the first one in, the last one to leave. Mark Viduka was the last one in and the first one to leave. Just to give you an idea, it was just natural talent and he didn't give a shit, he was lazy. But what a player. So he was that good. There was two two stories I'll never forget. The first one was pre-season. We had to do this thing called tens. And what it is, it's ten length of the field. And Eddie Gray had to give you a time that you'd get in. Um, so, you know, if, if, if a field's 100 metres, it's like we call it a thousand metre club. And you had to just sprint from start to finish. Well, the Duke's pre-season, he'd said, I'm not going to get in that time to Eddie Eddie Gray and David O'Leary. And it was this must have been the second season because he'd been there the first season and he had an unbelievable season. So it was the second season we were doing these runs. And they said he'd he come back a bit out of shape, but he knew, he's, he knew when he had to be ready. He had to be ready for the first game of the season. So this day, O'Leary and um, Eddie said, if you don't get in this time, 
you'll do it again. And he said, well, if I can't get in this time, I'm not going to get in the next time then, am I? So you might as well just run us all night long, he said. And they said, well, if you don't put it in for the rest of the boys, you won't play the first game of this season. And Vadukes went, yeah, I will, mate, because I'm your best player. <laughs> and he said that out loud. And we all started laughing because we couldn't believe what he was actually saying. But it was so true because he was the best player. And I knew, I knew when I saw him turn up and how good he was, I thought my days are numbered here because him and Harry Kuehl are unbelievable together. Um, but the best one was that warm down because we all had to be in on a Sunday morning. If because we always we always went out as a team. We're young lads. We went out in Leeds together. It was one out, all out. The team camaraderie was unbelievable. Even even like um, yeah, Radebe's, Nigel Martin's, David Batty's. They were always out together as a team. We'd always go out, and we had to be in for the cool down Sunday morning because Lee we enjoyed hearing the stories, like what we got up to, who the boys had scored with off the field, and you know, you, you just enjoyed the hearing the stories. And he made sure that if you had a few too many drinks, you got taxis in, you don't come in. So he did the, they did the right thing. So this day, Vadux didn't come in and we're all in my training gear and um, Vadux nowhere to be seen. So all of a sudden, we're all training, doing the warm-up, we're jogging across the pitch. This car pulls up. This guy, Vadux, gets out with his shirt from the night before, pair of jeans on from the night before, jumps over the wooden fence, joins him with the boys. Good eye, boys. Good morning. We're like, <laughs> the gaffer's going to kill you. And the gaffer was like, Morning, big man. Great to see you. <laughs> like, only you, you fucker, could get away with that. <laughs> only you. So he did the cool and then down. In his, he did the cool down. In his clothes no, from the night did, before. Night before, he did four lengths of the field and then he jumped the fence, got in his car and went before the end of the session. <laughs> and we were like, this guy's unbelievable. Superb. Man. An- another player who wasn't too fond of training, so we hear David Batty, wondering if you could put us in touch with the man, the myth, the enigma. Yeah, Bat- Bat's... I, I was scared of bats um, and it took us about I wanted to know why he missed the what it felt like to miss the penalty for England not a thing you're going to ask David Batty because you know he's a psycho um, and to, to give you an idea of how much of a psycho bats is one day we were playing what would you like to do if you could do anything what would you like to do and you know there's a few answers like oh I wish you could fly or something like that somebody was like oh I wish I could be invisible or you know what what what, what would you like to do bats I'd like to come home and catch a robber in my house with my four mates. <laughs> I'm like, why? I'd put him in the garage, I'd tie him up and I'd torture him for a week. And we were like, whoa, this guy's, this guy's mental. Like, I'm kidding you. That, that gives you an insight into the, mind, the mindset of David Batty. What would you like to do? Fantasizing. That's what he would like to do. Man, I felt, like, I, felt like saying there's web, I felt like saying there's websites for that kind of shit, man. <laughs> Um, so that that was Batty but I was really surprised Batty did not enjoy football he said it paid the bills and he was very good at it and he wanted to start off a motorbike racing team a GP racing team and obviously after football finished we've never seen Bats ever again he, he drives he, he drives around his motorbike um, and I think him and his family live somewhere I don't know Leeds, Scarborough if he's, anybody knows of him please tell him asking after him he was an absolute legend but um, such it's just incredible to think that somebody played to that level and didn't really enjoy the game and didn't follow the game. I think after that story, Ketch, we finally rule him out as a guest. Uh, not interested, thank no, you. No, we'll, we'll find him. <laughs> we'll find that. Yeah. We ask everyone, because we're searching for shinies, Michael, who was your shiny player? So this is the best player you played with or against in your career. Oh, a shiny... So you're talking like a shiny panini card, Yeah. Yeah, so the shiny is the most oh, coveted sticker. It's, yeah, it's what I always wanted to be one of them because it was always the badges and I always wanted to be one, but I wasn't good enough. Um, <laughs> who would I say? Um, 
I've, uh, I hate to say it because he went to bloody Manchester United, but uh, Rio Ferdinand. I've got to say Rio or Frank. No, Frankie Lampard. I played with I played with played against Frank when he was obviously at Chelsea and West Ham, but played with him for the for England under 18s, 19s, 21s. Um, Fat Frank when he was a young kid. On it, that was his name, Fat Frank. Um, or Frank the Tank, and he. Oh man, yeah. Just to see what he what what he went on to become was just just incredible. Yeah, I'll say Frankie. And you, what the you and your England under eighteen teammates called him Fat Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was he was tubby. He was a tubby kid. I used to always um, I used to always get his fork, um, and what I'd do I'd I'd put some butter. I'd wipe these fork through butter so it got sticky, and then I'd uh, doll it up with chili flakes or Tabasco because he hated <laughs> spicy food, and yet then I'd put his fork back down just so you and you couldn't see it, and I'd get a little cloth. Or a napkin, oh. and just make sure you put it down the f- edges of the fork, so you couldn't see any of the butter or anything. And when he took it into his food, he was like you bastard, you've done us again. Where were you? <laughs> every every time, fat Frank. He loved his food, so you knew he wouldn't check his cutlery because he just wanted to get that food in his mouth so quick. We can't have someone who played for Newcastle come on the show and not ask a few questions about Newcastle. I'm a, I'm a big Newcastle fan. Obviously, you 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 um, were loaned out to Newcastle. Um, in in t- two thousand three, two thousand four, you're still only twenty six, but obviously the injuries had, were starting to come in. But you must have felt that was like a huge opportunity. I remember at the time you said that that was everything you ever wanted to, to play for to play up in North Tyneside for Newcastle. Well, everything I ever wanted was to play for Tottenham, but that backfired very quickly. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it was I had gone to Newcastle as a as a kid. My dad was a Newcastle fan, so for him, he, you know, him he endured five years supporting Sunderland and his son. Um, I thought when I went back to Newcastle, it's the only time I've seen my dad cry when I've lined up before a match, um, wearing that shirt. So that that show that that's what it meant to to him. It was an opportunity. I was told that I wasn't required anymore at Leeds. I had six months left on my contract. Eddie Gray said, unfortunately, so the decline of the club. There's no contract there. There's going to be big changes. We're in free fall. Um, Bobby Robson will take you to give you an opportunity, and you might get another contract. So a quick one on Newcastle and Bobby. As I signed. I knew I was going to have a nightmare because as I signed, Bobby went, welcome to the club, Gary. <laughs> I looked over my shoulder and I went, you called me fucking Gary. And I thought, this is priceless, this. But what had happened, Gary, I think um, Stevie Caldwell had gone in the part exchange the other way to Leeds and he thought I was Gary Caldwell. Like, he just got us mixed up. We look very similar, to be fair, with the big nose and all that. And um, I, I was a bit disappointed because I thought he was actually thinking I was good looking like Gary Speed, but it wasn't. Um, I know Speed was no longer with us, God bless him. Um, rest in peace, big man. But uh, yeah, it was quite a surreal. So every morning, it was, it was funny. He'd call me Gary. And he would go, morning, Gary. I'd say, morning, Bobby, morning, boss. And I never had the heart to tell him. Um, what Because I, I, I knew, he, I didn't know whether he was playing because he was a bit of a character like that, testing you out. And what, what happened? Lee Boyer looked like the kit man Neil at Newcastle. They, were both, they both looked like rats. Two, two, of the, two of the ugliest men in football. And obviously Neil was a kit man. So Bobby would call, Bobby would call Lee, Neil. And it used to wind Lee Boyer up no end. And he would, he would, he would go to us, he's called as Neil again. I'm fuming, I'm fuming. So this day, Lee lost it at him. And he said, for fuck's sake, Bobby. He said, my name is Lee. He said, I know it is, young man. It's always been a test. You've just brought the trust there. So he was, oh, he was no. a, hey, yeah, honestly, just, a, just a, a tester, man. So do you think he was deliberately getting people's names wrong? I tr- 
No, I think I think the I think a bit of old age had kicked in, but I you know I mean Lee was very similar to Neil and and, and myself. I thought when you signed a player, you wouldn't know who you're signing like. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. I think there was a bit of it was a bit of a bit of jest, knowing that he made a mistake and he would just carry on with the joke, basically. You know, because when I met him years later in Portugal and went for one of his golf events, it was Michael. Great to see you. And he remembered my wife's name, Kate. So he'd only met her once. And he was like, great to meet you, Kate. And I was like, bloody hell, Bobby, you've only met her once. You remember her name. And that just shows how much of an incredible man he is and how how clever he is. So, yeah, I think it was all just a test. Yeah, interesting. It's been mentioned that, that he was, it could have been deliberate, but I think he probably had that one up his sleeve, didn't he, in case someone called him out on it. Aye. Good one. Aye, aye. You were most obviously mostly featured from the bench for Newcastle and you seem to play as a right winger m- most of the time. That must have been a bit frustrating for you. Yeah, it was because what what I'd done, I'd I'd lost my I'd lost my pace and I'd lost a bit of the 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 drive. So I came to Newcastle with a guy called Neil Winspur, and he was going to get his fit and and I was playing a bit bit part like you say. And you know, bloody hell, you got Alan Shearer, Craig Bellamy, uh, Shola Amiobi, myself. It was um, you know front four competition for places. So I was just happy to get to get a run out again and be um, be playing football. And what had happened, Bobby had offered us a new contract for the following season. And this is, this is just to finish off, this is, if any people want to understand what it is about Bobby Robson, how he is an in- incredible man, and uh, was an incredible man, and um, these are the values that you need in life. He offered me a contract and said, I'll, and you haven't had enough time with Winspur to get yourself fit. I want to see you for next year. There's glimpses of it, and you just haven't had a, a, a good opportunity. He said, "There's a contract here for you." So I was absolutely buzzing with that. I'd never thought I would I would get another year. You know, um, thought I'd have to go back down the divisions again and start sort of look for another another club. And fast forward three, uh, two months. We'd come to the end of the season. I'm in the off season. I'm driving down um, to Leeds to collect some clothes from my house to bring back up or get some gear out of the house. And he rang us, and I was going past Middlesbrough. I'll never forget. I was going past uh, Middlesbrough, just towards. Um, it was near the Cram Lobster Hotel, Aisenby, I think it was. And he asked us, he said, can you pull over, Michael, in the car? I need to have a chat with you, young man. I said, yeah, yeah, no bother. There was no hands-free then. I didn't have one of them cars. So I pulled over and he said, um, listen, I'm, I've got some really, really bad news. Are you okay? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sitting down. He said, how far away from your house are you? I thought, shit, something something big's happened, you know. He said, I'm just wrinkling, you know, I'm really sorry. There's, I'm going to have to renege on that contract for next season. Um, that I offered you, I promise you. He said, um, I'm going to do everything in my power to get you a new football club. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you a great reference. Um, you you know, it's it's out of my hands, unfortunately. I've I've begged and pleaded for you. I've, I honoured you, that contract, and I'm going to have to take it away from you. And I, I was shell-shocked. And I was like, Bobby, like, what, what's happened? He said, you know, there's things going on with Freddie Shepard at the club, and and um, it's just not the right time. And he said, but uh, can you handle this? He said, when you get down to Leeds, and how far away from your house are you? I said, an hour give me a call. We need to discuss more. I need to make sure you're in a good mindset. And obviously I was, I was shattered because I'm thinking, bloody hell, I've got to find a new club now. Um, and where's this all come from? So I started the car up again um, and I got the leads and I thought, I've got to ring me old man and tell me dad the news and tell the family what's happened. So I rang my dad and I said, dad, I've got some really bad news. I said, I've just had Bobby on the phone and he's just told us that well, there's no contract there for us. He's had to renege on it because there's something going on. And he said, well, have you not heard the news? I said, what news? He said, Bobby's been sacked. 
And I no. went, oh, my God. I said, Dad, he never mentioned a thing. I said he was more worried and bothered about me. And I felt terribly guilty then. So Bobby had been sacked at Newcastle. And all he was bothered about was the players that he'd offered contracts to, that he was making sure we were fine. He wasn't bothered about himself. He never mentioned it. That is the mentality wow. and the values um, in, the, in that man. What a guy. And um, he helped us get it. He helped us get a contract and a, an opportunity with Sam Allardyce at Bolton Wanderers. So there you go, an Amazing. unbelievable figure. Amazing, Amazing, yeah. Amazing. And he, and he, you know, Bobby got shafted. I mean, we, he, <coughs> yeah. he, he, he got shafted big style. Bless him. And um, he, he wasn't bothered by that. He wanted to make sure that the lads that he had under his wing, he looked after them. So yeah, top, top man. Okay, listeners, that was Michael Bridgie Bridges. Now, Bridgie gives a great interview. He's very professional, isn't he, Ketch? He knows what he's doing. Professional broadcaster. Couldn't, c- can't put a foot wrong. He did let us down a couple of times. Now, in the first instance, we booked him in, and he forgot it was his birthday. <laughs> he booked us in on his birthday. Oh, lads, I'm really sorry. I can't do it. It's my birthday. Like, well, it hasn't Selfish. just become your birthday. Yeah. So... Um, but so he did cut us a bit short, and he but he did say he'd come on again if we if we wanted more Bridges. So mm. listeners, if you fancy a bit more Michael Bridges, I'm sure he's got loads more in the locker. I feel like he was holding back a little bit. I'm sure he'd get him on again. What I will say is, with these interviews, you know we do loads of prep and try and keep it professional, but at the same time we do try and poke a bit of fun at the players. And I put a risky joke in there about that you know him playing second fiddle to Quinn and Phillips, given their famous relationship and partnership. I said, you know, where do you see yourself fitting in there? You know, were you close up to the perspex or were you sitting centrally? Making a joke that he was permanently on the bench. Thinking, is is he going to respond well to that? He's he's actually hunted it seriously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. amazing. I mean, that's how professional he is. He's thought, okay, he wants to know where I sit on the bench. Um, I'm going to tell him. I was, you know, I'm a perspex man, yeah, yeah. I'm being honest. So, yeah, I just think he's just he just hasn't got your shit banter there and he's just... He's just got, but no, it was, it was good to have him on. You know, come on, listener, let's, you know, we'll leave the ball in your court with that. Do you want more Michael Bridges? Do you want to hear about the Carlisle, the Bristol City and the whole years? We'll get him back on. We'll we'll message him. We've got him We've got him on WhatsApp, Bridgie. And we can have him on for, for round two. So let us know if you want to see that happen. Do you know any other players from the 1997 sticker book? As I mentioned at the start of the show, we are in Struggleville trying to get some players. It has been a slog booking players for season two. Mm. We need the last few. We could really do with a player come on. from one of these clubs, Villa. Blackburn fans, where are you? We need a Blackburn player. Coventry, Sky Blues, Everton, Liverpool, Man United. Please, come on. Let's get some mm. players in from that. We're so yeah. close to... Com- if we can get you players from those clubs... Yeah. yeah Someone Beckham. must know Beckham. <laughs> come on. Message him. Actually, just start messaging him on, on our behalf and say, come on, do you want to do Search of a Shiny? He's great. 90 Sticker Book podcast. So, He's not busy, you know, he? hit, hit social media for him. We've had players, you know, we've had listeners put us in touch with players who they've, you know, got in touch with on social media, forums, supporter clubs, spread the word. If you're unsure if a player is in the sticker book, I have scanned the entire book on our website, sergeyforshinies.com. So uh, have a look. And if you can connect us with a player who had a sticker in the 97 Merlin Premier League sticker book, please get in touch. Uh, also, you know, we still want to hear about your random 90s football memorabilia. We we love pictures. Tag us on social media. We are at the Shiny Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So we want to see that, and we'll we'll read out the best on our shows. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to right now. And you know, if you've got time to give us a five star rating and review on iTunes, honestly, it it keeps the heating on in mine and Richie's house. Um, <laughs> if you've never done this for a podcast. 
I've never done it, I don't think, even for our shows. But please, break your duck with us. Wouldn't dream we want to know. We want to know. We want those five-star reviews. You, you've been very generous. Some listeners have. So please join in and five-star review. Bumps us up those iTunes charts. We'll probably be in the top thousand soon of the Philippines comedy <laughs> list again. That's where we want to be. And uh, if you have any mates who would appreciate what we're doing here at Searching for Chinese, tell them we exist. Put a link to us in your football WhatsApp groups. We love that. Spread the word. We've had lots of people doing that. Sharing with mates. But last and not least, if you do one thing this week, Bridgie, keep it shiny. Keep it shiny.